Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. So today I am going to be talking all about community, connection, and belonging as self-care. So um, I probably sound slightly different. I feel like I sound different. And um, that's in part because um I lost my voice and it kind of came back (laughs) and I am just returning from Puerto Rico and I am so excited uh, to talk about my trip because I, well, one, I had an amazing time and I just want to share it with you all, but also because there are so many lessons that I learned in such a short period of time that I just want to share it with whoever will listen and hopefully um, can see elements of their life in it as well as um, some hope. So um, where do I want to start? I think, uh, well, I want to start by saying that I was in Puerto Rico for a wedding, uh, two beautifully dope human beings uniting as one. And in addition to really loving the bride and groom and um, being able to share in and partake in their union, I am just so amazed at the collection of people that they brought together because they are connected to so many awesome people. Um, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll go here and take it back a little bit. So in March of 2021, Uh, I began a nine-month journey uh, in training in somatic abolitionism with uh, Resma Minicum and his team. And if you don't know who Resma Minicum is, he is the author of My Grandmother's Hands. If you have not read My Grandmother's Hands, yeah, I'm going to need you to go ahead and do that. Um, Fantastic book that speaks my language talking about white body supremacy and racism through the lens of a collective central nervous system issue. So not the point of the podcast, but a dope book. He's a dope person. He too has assembled a dope team. And um, I've really enjoyed being part of this community that is growing around somatic abolitionism and uh, creating culture for healing, a a culture of healing. But back in March, when it first started, um, it began with a a day-long training. And this training was held via webinar. So it wasn't very interactive. It was more like kind of a download of information that 
laid the foundation, at least the informational foundation for the work that we will be doing for the rest of the year. And at lunch of that training, I was so overwhelmed. I was activated. Uh, It was so much going on. And uh, one thing that I'll share um, that happened during that is I had gone to the restroom and after coming out of the restroom, I got this urge to run. So first of all, you got to know me. Shonda don't run. (laughs) If something chasing me, we gonna have to talk it out. Like Shonda just doesn't run. So to get an urge and and this urge, urge even seems too, um, too small. I got this, like this, this compul like I had to run. And so I began running in place in my office, just run. And I'm talking full out sprint in place. And it was so powerful because what I realized in that moment is that healing and healing from trauma reaches both forward and backward. And I was able to do what my ancestors couldn't in a lot of circumstances, which was run, escape, see the door, exit and things. So that was a powerful experience. But I realized in having that experience, I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. And I became overwhelmed with this heaviness of the reality that I lacked a Black village. I had and have been navigating mostly white spaces since I was an undergrad. And coming from growing up in Detroit, where all of my friends pretty much were Black, um, with, you know, I had a couple non-Black friends, but most of my friends were Black. I saw my racial identity reflected back at me every single day. So to go from that experience to the University of Michigan, where Black students were 8% of the student population, I still managed to find community. Now, um, that wasn't, I found many communities in undergrad, but by singing in the Michigan Gospel Chorale and um, a lot of other activities that I did, I created for myself uh, a community, a tribe in a village where my racial identity was reflected. After undergrad, however, not the case. So I have been navigating spaces where my racial identity has not been reflected um, for, you know, about 16, 17 years. And it wasn't until, and and I also want to say that like, and I, I do it well, you know, I've learned to leverage my racial identity in many situations. And what I mean by that is I know in some cases people, you know, if they're the only whatever, in this case, I will say black person or black woman in a space, sometimes that can lead to a lot of different feelings. Sometimes maybe it's a feeling of inferiority or fear. I walked into situations like that and I went, so you need me. (laughs) You need my voice. You don't have you don't have my voice, so you need that. And so I've that's how I've approached many environments, situations over those last 17 years. But it became so 
um, glaring to me this Saturday in March that I was in desperate need for a Black village, that I, I needed to see my racial identity reflected back at me. And I had one person I could call. I called my friend Daniel. We do some of this work together. So I knew I didn't have to explain anything. Um, there were a couple other people I knew I could call if I, you know, if I needed to, but I called Daniel and he just listened. And I went through a myriad of uh, emotions from excitement that I was learning and participating in this and fear and sadness and all that stuff. And, you know, he, he held me gently in that, but I'm sharing that because it was then that I declared I need a black village and tribe. And so not only did I speak that out into the ethos and as part of that, my tribe and community and village began to manifest, but it was also where it became a very intentional thing on my part. So you fast forward now, I'm in Puerto Rico, and I am a part of a community that was just so dope. <laughs> I my, my racial identity was reflected back at me. My body, my body image, my being a fat Black woman was reflected back at me. Um, hair, just, it was just so beautiful. And if you've never been consistently the other, then this might not make sense to you. You know, it may seem, well, I don't know. I'm thinking if you tune tuning into my podcast, some of these thoughts might not be yours, but maybe they are. You know, why are you making it about rate? Listen, because it is. So anyway, that was to, to be able to stop and reflect, but I think that's important too. It wasn't that I made this declaration back in March and no, I have been aware over the last several months of how, how my tribe, how my community, how my village is shaping up. And I, I sit in gratitude about that frequently. So um, one, I was just surrounded by a bunch of dope black people, y'all. And I was one of those dope black people to bring this just amazing energy into the space. So I could stop the podcast there. Like it was, it was so good um, to have that experience. And the emphasis, though, I will say, um, by many matrixes, we were a group of highly successful, highly motivated, though eclectic in our professions and passions and labors of love and the gifts that we bring. And I, I want to like be forthright about that, but that wasn't even what made it just was special to be there, to be part of a community. It made me realize how outside of community I have been for most of my life. I went to very small uh, elementary slash middle school. I went to a very small high school. 
And those small schools kind of are a community just in general because of how small they are. And while I was the person who could be part of every group and not um, stand out or be othered, because I was constantly shifting and shaping, shift, shape-shifting, um, I fit in everywhere and I fit in nowhere. And I recognize that that's a part of how I learned to survive. And what I realize um, is when we struggle with rejection and deep-rooted abandonment, we just want to be a part. We don't necessarily care how or why. We just don't want to be isolated or alone. Unfortunately, our consistent shape-shifting means that we are abandoning, our, abandoning ourselves over and over and over again. So being able to show up in a space where I didn't have to shape shift, I didn't have to do anything but be me, and I felt part of a community and I was in community with others was a freaking amazing, okay? So now I, when I was preparing for this trip, and um, I am part of, of a Black woman investment group. And so all of us were on this trip. These are women that, um, whom I only knew one person in the group um, in the beginning, and now I know them all and we've been building relationship. It was so nice to be there together. So I knew them, but we got to know each other so much more. And as I was on this trip, I began to think, huh, I wonder if this is going to be my NOLA redemption. So what I will say to you is if you have not um, listened to the episode of my podcast where I talk about my trip to New Orleans, I believe the title is like racist shit and other stuff. <laughs> I think that was the name of the of the episode. Um, you'll, I recommend or encourage you to go back and listen to it to really understand um the next part that I'm going to talk about. But I just remember being like, man, maybe this will be my NOLA redemption. And so when we're in, we were in San Juan, old San Juan, Puerto Rico. And uh, the first evening there had dinner. And then a few of my friends um, and I we're just kind of walking around. It got dark really early, like before six o'clock. So it seemed late, but it wasn't really late. It was just dark. We we're kind of walking around and the part of old San Juan that we were in felt very NOLA-esque. It was really the architecture, the narrow streets, the cobblestone narrow streets with um, kind of this French architecture with the balconies and just the, the, the overall feel felt very New Orleans. And I was like, oh, it even feels like New Orleans right now, but I don't feel like I did in New Orleans. You know, I knew this group of women, so I just kept going. Um, we grabbed a few drinks um, and all that stuff. So anyway, we met up with some other people who were there for the wedding and we talked with them for a little bit. Um, and then one of the gentlemen that we had met accompanied us to another part of the city. 
um, Little Old San Juan of this part. And so we went and, you know, just kind of bar hopping. It was it was a, a Wednesday, so it wasn't too much going on. But we were going. And so we found this one bar. They had a rooftop. And for context, I'm going to tell you that while it was just the ladies and I, we were sitting kind of like at this one bar outside and there were people walking up and down. Well, it was kind of like a narrow alleyway. And one gentleman walked by and as he's walking by, he looked at my friend, one of my friends, and he's like, oh, you're so beautiful. You're so beautiful. And she was like, oh, then buy me a drink. And he's like, oh, maybe I will. And he's like walking. Right. You know, so we kind of like smirk and we keep going on about our lives. So later we get to um, another, a whole other part of, you know, little of old San Juan and we find this rooftop bar. So we're all up there. There's about five of us. There's four ladies. There's one guy and we see the same guy. So he comes over and he says to my friend, oh, sorry, I didn't buy you a drink um, earlier. And she's like, that's okay. You can buy us all a drink now. And he's like, oh, you know, kind of laughed it off or whatever. So somehow a discussion about his hair got brought up. Um, you know, he had like this flowing hair. He identified himself as Indian. Um, but it was kind of long and, 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 you know, it was like, I think somebody asked if they could touch his hair. And I think the funny part about that is that uh, at the time, like most of us who were sitting around there had been in the DEI space. So we were just kind of joking around, like, you know, how many of us black women specifically have had people try or suggest they wanted to touch our hair. But anyway, at some point, my same friend, that he was talking to or initiated the conversation with, she said, you know what? We all have beautiful hair. And the guy was like, yeah, yeah, we do. Except the wig and pointed at me. Yes, he did. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Except the wig and like pointed right at me. Now, was I wearing a wig? I absolutely was. Her name is Veronica and she's very beautiful. And it was the, it, so if you remember in New Orleans, the overlap here is me being with a group of people and some random dude saying something offensive. In New Orleans, it wasn't specifically towards me and it was more racial, but that's the point. Some some random dude says something and my default that's offensive and my default autonomic response is freeze. Well, this time, well, we all, I think, froze for a second because it was so like, did this dude just say that? And so, man, like, all of a sudden, like, my people were like, um, excuse me, I don't remember exactly what they were saying, um, but I do know that they were not silent. I do know that they did not they, I think everyone probably did look at me at first, like, but they weren't looking at me like, oh, what is she going to do? What is she going to say? No, they, they moved into action and they were just like, okay, not okay. You know, whatever was being said. And the fascinating part was I was able to move out of my freeze very quickly, unlike when I was in NOLA. So outside of just the personal anecdote, like I want to break that down. Um, like I have many a times on the podcast, when we have moments of fear, threat, danger, or stress, 
we only have five options. We can flock, which is gaining safety through connection. We can flee, which is gaining safety through distance. We can fight, which is gaining safety through coming closer to overcome or control. We can freeze or we can move into like a faint or fawn um, response. When freeze is the default response or the autonomic response or the first response, if safety presents itself, meaning there, there, there is a moment where you find someone to flock towards or with, or you find a safe place to flee away to, or you feel that you can control the situation, then you can get out of freeze and go flock, flee, or fight. But if safety does not present itself, then we move into a more shut down or fawn, you know, acquiesce, please everyone state. When I was in New Orleans and that very offensive thing was said, there was no safety that presented itself. The people who were with me were silent. Um, I didn't feel supported in the moment or after, but anyway. Um, so I stayed in freeze. I stayed and shut down. I, I, was, I began to withdraw. I had this whole experience that I told you all about. Well, it was amazing to me that because there was safety, because you know what? These people had my back. I was able to come out of that freeze and I went straight to fight. <laughs> and the interesting thing was it wasn't fight. Like I didn't cuss him out. I didn't do anything. I had questions. <laughs> so first of all, first I had to tell him he needs to mind his own damn business. And he kept trying to dig himself out of the hole. So he went into like, I'm just saying, you know, he started with something like, oh, what, what? Like, I think there was a genuine, like, um, what did I say was wrong? <laughs> Whatever. So then, um, you know, he was like, oh, just about height. He was just saying a bunch of bull. So, you know, if you've ever been around Shonda, Shonda will read you. She will. I will. Mm -hmm. Very, very, though, intellectually and politely. And it even it hurts more that way. But essentially, you know, I had to let him know it wasn't about hiding. Um, that though I owed him no explanation, I would school him. There is an accessory and mine is beautiful. And I wear just, just this whole thing. But the whole point was I asked him, did you learn something? Because he's like, oh, I guess I shouldn't have said anything. And I said, so that's what you learned. What if I, what if I had canceled? Like, I just, you know, it was just this very interesting thing. So then he went on to say like, oh, you know, I'm a stand-up comic or something, which made my friend really mad because she is a stand-up comic. <laughs> so she left the table. Like, I can't take this anymore. And she went over to talk to a group of guys. You know, she just went, walked away. He was still mumbling about something. I wasn't really paying attention. She went to talk to this group of guys. And I believe along the lines of what she said was like, she just went over there like, sorry to crash y'all's party, but this guy's getting on my nerves. So I just came over here to talk to you guys. And they identified him. And she was like, yeah, the stand-up comic. And they were like, huh, more like the, what was it? More like the millionaire trust fund baby, whatever they called them. But y'all, it started to make so much sense to me. Like, oh, I like, I, I, I get, it actually gave me some empathy. First of all, you used to saying whatever you want without anyone saying anything to you. He went on to do this. It became evident 
after more observation, he ain't got no friends. He has people whose businesses he'd invested in. But I just began to feel sorry for him. Um, But he's not the point of the story. The point of the story is being in community with people that I felt safe with and that had my back allowed me to move out of this space of freeze and shutdown that could have lasted I don't know how long. Um, And yeah, it didn't ruin my... Like, ultimately, I really don't. Like, what he thinks about my hair, I was very intrigued because listen, y'all, unofficial commercial, be natural um, wigs by Brittany Hair Kitchen Gray are the bomb. So I'm also looking like, how you know it's a wig? Because <laughs> it don't look like one. But that's one thing I was eager to just share. The stark differences between two very similar situations and how community was the defining difference in, in the safety that I felt. So it really did feel like um, a NOLA redemption. Um, and so, yeah, also, I must say, it was so interesting um, that the millionaire wouldn't buy her a drink. <laughs> That's a whole different story. Um, we were not interested. Anyway, so anyway, um, now, in full transparency, what's very interesting is, you know, I, you know, the night went on, had a good time. I did find that if not the next day, then two days later, I did find myself self-conscious about my hair. And what I realized is it wasn't me. It was one of my littles. I realized that I had made it through that situation as my functional adult. I had come back out of this shutdown state and said the things I needed to say and actually had some empathy and sympathy for this dude and moved on with my life. But what I didn't do is I didn't check in with my littles. I didn't take the time to go to reassure myself, to validate myself. All the things that I knew in my functional adult self, I didn't pass those messages on to those younger parts of me that were made fun of as a kid. I I have had my hair made fun of. I had really bad acne when I was in like eighth grade. Um, I was made fun of for being fat. Like So I, I didn't acknowledge and take the time to really think about how that experience may have activated those younger parts of me. But when I started to notice this self-consciousness and things like that, I was like, you know what? I need to check in and I needed, I needed to reassure those parts of me. Girl, we are good. We are so good. And it's, 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 it, it didn't focus on that person because we, you are beautiful. I had to tell her all of the things she needed to know. They didn't need to come from anyone else outside of me. My, my crew, my tribe, they were so reassuring, but that's the thing, right? As reassuring as they were, they couldn't reach my littles. Only I could. Did y'all hear that? They were reassuring to me, the adult, but I had to do the work to reach my littles. So that's one story. Another is how good it felt to see like my body reflected back. Um, 
I I don't know if I've sh- you know shared this on the podcast or not, but it's it's part of the common story that I will share. When I was growing up in adolescence, this was back before cell phones. We had pagers, um, but at least geographically where I'm from, you would like hang out at the mall or you know the state fair, or local fairs, whatever. And I have this um, ongoing narrative based on experiences I had in my adolescence where if I was hanging out with a group of friends, let's say there were four of us and we're out, it was kind of the thing at the time to like get numbers. And if you were a girl, the thing was, I mean, you could get a guy's number, but more accurately, it's like they're getting your numbers. Are they going to come pull your number? (laughs) Whether you gave them the right phone number or not, right? This was kind of a matrix that was used during adolescence to, in some ways, validate your beauty or prettiness or attractiveness or whatever that is. And so I have numerous experiences and memories of if there were me and I was hanging out and there were four of us hanging out, and let's say there were three guys, um, a group of three guys. You know, the three guys would approach us four girls and I would very consistently almost always be the one left out. No one wanted my number. Let's say I was hanging out and there were four of us and there were four guys. Then three guys would be getting my friend's number and the fourth one would mysteriously have something to do or be tying his shoe. And it happened enough that it really began to leave this imprint um, and re and, and script this narrative in my mind about my desirability, my attractiveness, um, and all of those things. It got to the point where I learned how to mitigate the pain by also being distracted. If there was a group of three and I saw them approaching, it was four of us, all of a sudden, I'll be like, oh, let me go in here and look at this. And I would go. So I learned how to um, remove myself from the situation so it would feel less painful and embarrassing. And when things happen to us in our life, particularly as we're growing up as toddlers and as children and as adolescents, we experience things, but we have to wrap meaning around it and like create a narrative. Why is this happening? And for me, the narrative that it always came down to is because I was fat. I don't think I ever thought I was unattractive. I don't think I've ever thought, you know, I was ugly. But I always thought that like my size was this insurmountable barrier towards me being desirable or attractive. I have always been smart funny, tons of personality, kind, but those things didn't matter. (laughs) They didn't matter in adolescence. Who cares if you have a great personality if no one wants to be with you? That's what I thought. So I, you know, went through adolescence having these narratives. It is actually one of the main narratives that led me into my first relationship, which resulted in marriage and divorce. It was 12 years long um, because I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely believed 
that no one else in the world would want me. So I had to be with this person who expressed a little bit of interest, despite the rainbow of flags, not just red ones. <laughs> Roy G. Biv up in this mug, a lot of flags. It didn't matter. I share that because the narrative that I stuck with is that my body was a problem. Um, my body was bad. All of these different things. And over the last 10 years, as I've been gently massaging away at that narrative um, and, and helping myself understand the realities that those things are not true, being in certain situations activates that young girl. So here I am hanging out in Puerto Rico with a lot of my girlfriends and they're so beautiful. And, and what I noticed is, oh, I don't feel inferior. I don't feel insecure. It's okay. And, and we, what I love, uh, this is so specifically about the investment group. Um, and these friends, these sisters that I'm developing now, is we have such a wide variety of shades of our of our beautiful brown skin, different heights, different shapes, different sizes, different weights, different passions, different jobs. It is just this very beautiful, eclectic thing. So it's not like we all look the same, but it felt so good to just be with people. And I, and those old feelings didn't resurface. Again, another point I want to make, if I don't spend time in my body, if I don't slow down and reflect then the beauty of those moments just pass me by without me realizing it. But because I have truly prioritized slowing down, being still, being present, being in the moment, noticing my body, I was able to recognize that while it was happening and have real-time gratitude. And I was able in some of those moments to go, you feel that? This is what we always deserve. So I was able to invoke my my littles in those moments to help heal some of that stuff. And it was just so beautiful. Um, perhaps one of the, so that's another story. <laughs> perhaps my final story and one that I want to share is um, I got to get in the water. So I honestly don't know if I was in the Pacific Ocean or the Caribbean Sea. Um, I probably have also stated I suck at geography. Now, I have a spectacular sense of direction, but my geography sucks. Um, I ain't gonna lie. I had to look up on a map like, where is Puerto Rico? But um, I got to get in the water. And the thing is, we um, we had something planned um, the day after the wedding. And then we were all just really tired. So we pushed it back and then it took a little longer than we thought. And I really, really, really wanted to get to the beach before the sunset. And that did not happen because the sunset at 548. Um, and so by six o'clock it was dark, but I was like, mm -mm, I'm still going to the beach. So a group of us went to the beach. And when I tell you, first of all, I am a freaking mermaid. Okay. Like, in some ways, I feel like Moana is my life story. How the, how the water calls her, 
I say this and I feel like people are kind of like, oh yeah, I like the water too. And what I'm saying is, no, y'all don't get it. (laughs) This is not Shonda likes the water. This is, there is a deep and high and wide divine spiritual draw (laughs) to the water. And when I say the water, I mean the ocean, the Caribbean Sea, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, big bodies of salt water. And so, but I had never been beaching at night or in the dark. When I tell you this was one of the most amazing experiences ever, I mean it. Okay. When we, when my husband and I were in Cancun a few months, not Cancun, yes, Cancun, when we were in Cancun a few months ago, um, the beach closed at seven o'clock. You know, and I was grateful we had a pool at our room. So I was able to like be in water, but it's not the same. So being able to go out when it's dark. Um, now we had to be careful because there were riptides, right? So we don't want to get carried away. But when we get there and I'm just like, you know what? I'm willing to sacrifice being uncomfortable. Once I get in the water, I'll get used to it because I thought it was going to be super cold. First of all, it was so warm. <laughs> oh my God. The water was so warm. And so there were about four or five of us ladies. And when I tell you, it was fun. So growing up as an only child, um, I made family as I went along. Um, I have an older sister, but she grew up like an only child too. We're 14 months, 14 years apart. So I didn't get to, I didn't have a lot of people to play with. And especially like multiple at one time, if I could bring a friend or have a friend. But when I tell you my littles got to play, oh my God, we were having so much fun in the water. And, you know, it went from just kind of standing and letting the water run until we just got, I'm talking all up in that. We had sand everywhere, but the waves would take us here and take us there. And we were laughing and we were falling and we were, it was so amazing. Okay. So amazing to be able to just be free. Um, Being in the water is always a spiritual experience for me. But you combine that with people, with with a community, with a sense of belonging and connection that I have with these ladies. It it was like I'm talking probably top top five life experiences to just allow myself to be that free, to have that much fun and to do it in the water was like hands down amazing. Um, I kept saying throughout the week, I got there on Wednesday, I was leaving on Saturday morning and, and throughout the week I kept saying, oh, I wish I, I wish I had, I wish I decided to stay till Sunday. I wish I decided to stay till Sunday. After I got out of that water, I was like, I can go home <laughs> because there was nothing more that I needed to do after that experience. Um, and part of it, in addition to the fun in the water, it was being in, you know, in my two-piece bathing suit and feeling no shame about my body or what other people are thinking and just holding on to that freedom. That is not something that I experienced earlier in my life or even more recently in my life was amazing, but it was just so 
joyous, just amazing. So um, I got ready. I came back home Saturday, uh, left Saturday morning. I got back home Saturday afternoon and I came home to my family you know, opening the the door and waiting for me at the door when I arrived. They missed me. I missed them. And I got to really just enjoy um, spending time with my family. Um, the girls, you know, I played with them and was with them until they went to bed. And my son, he just he kind of refused to go to bed. He just kind of fell asleep on the, the love sack next to me, which was really awesome. I love those moments. I won't take them for granted. Then he went to bed very tired. And then I woke up early the next morning and, and just laid in bed talking to my husband for a couple of hours. Oh my God. So amazing. You know, I feel like we haven't been able to do that in a long time, just life, you know, when we get up, the kids want something, but it was so, so, so nice. Then I went back to sleep and I slept late. I mean, till like one something. And then I got up and when I tell you something broke open in me in that water because things that I had been struggling with and stuck on now were free flowing. One of them is y'all, I have been updating my website since January, 2021, literally the person who does my web development did some stuff and all it was waiting on was my content fill in the content. And for many reasons, I would get stuck or super anxious. So I wouldn't do it. Now I realize I have gone through such, such a dramatic um, uh, evolution in the last 11 months that even if I had done it in January, it wouldn't have been what it needs to be right now. So I'm fine with the process, but I just need y'all to know that literally when I click on the back end of the website, to do anything. When I tell you my body tightens, it seizes, my heart rate increases, I start sweating. It It is like that. And yesterday or the day after I got back, I was in there updating this website and I just kept saying in the midst of it, Jay, I don't feel anxious. So I would like do one thing. Then like I would move to something else and be like, Jay, I still don't feel anxious. It was crazy. And what I realized is sometimes it really is a capacity thing. So two analogies that I thought of. One is, have you ever, many of us, I think, have been in this situation. You've been somewhere and you need to upload or download something. Um, and you're like on Wi-Fi or using your data. And while you're uploading or downloading, you move somewhere else and you lose connectivity. And so the thing is there, the thing you're uploading, it's still, you still have it, but it gets stuck. And then you don't, sometimes you don't know it. And then later you get somewhere else where you have good connectivity again. And then all of a sudden it resumes the process. That's what this kind of felt like to me. Um, I connected to something in Puerto Rico. Um, I connected to me. I connected to God. I connected to the water. I connected to my authenticity. I also think it's very important to note that Wednesday, when I got there Wednesday, we when we were out at that bar, I looked at my friends and I said, I am leaving Puerto Rico more authentic. I don't know exactly what that means necessarily. I think what it means 
is I am becoming more and more aware of who I am. But there are still these filters in place that I'm I'm like filtering myself through. And I was like, I think that's what I mean. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm leaving Puerto Rico more authentic. I made that declaration on Wednesday. And I did, because when I was updating this website, some of the things that would get me anxious would be like, okay, who's my target audience? All these things you're taught, like as a business owner, you know, some of the questions are, you know, what do you do that separates you from your competition? So first of all, I'm a healer. There's no competition in healing. There's enough sick people. There should be no competition. You know, who who's your target? You know, it's all these questions. How do you leverage yourself? How do you make it shiny and glitzy? And what I realized is when I was doing it yesterday, all of that went out the window. And I'm like, yo, put myself on this website. Who am I? That's one of the questions on there. Who am I? And so I started using words that I might use on this podcast, but I've never thought to put on um, on a website. I just started talking like me. And it felt so good. Um, I also had extra motivation because I did a photo shoot um, uh, a few weeks ago and I got the pictures back. (laughs) And so I'm like putting these words and now here are these new pictures. And um, also the beautiful thing about that to go back to village is, you know, in that photo shoot, I had this beautiful black village surrounding me. Brittany Hair Kitchen Gray with my hair and styled by Amani. She did all of my styling and helping me pick out my clothes. And Brittany with the brushes on my makeup. And Tasha Pinello did my photos. And my husband was there just being the most amazing supportive person ever. And so what I found is in these pictures, like I was nurtured in these pictures. It wasn't just pick some outfits and hurry up and change them, which can be kind of stressful. Like, oh, am I doing this? When I would get ready to change outfits, I had people taking my clothes and handing me what I should put on and putting on my shoes and jewelry. It was like, I get how people do this. So throwing that out there, but I, I, my website will be a reflection of me. That's beautiful. That's all I've ever wanted. Um, I just didn't know how to get there before. There were these blocks and barriers. And I'm not saying they're all gone. But what I am saying is that I am diligently working. My birthday is December 28th. And I will be 40. Well, it'll be my 40th birthday. <laughs> I'm, I'm in my 40th year of life. And it will conclude on that day. And I'll be moving into my 41st year of life. And I won't go back. When I, four days before my 30th birthday, I left a 12-year relationship in my life as I knew it. Four days before I turned 30. So I, or before my 30th birthday, I, um, I walked into my 30th birthday with my life upside down and inside out. And I honestly had no idea what was next. I just knew I couldn't stay. Things had to be different. And one of my really good friends bought me a journal for my birthday. And that journal cover was a blue journal. And on the cover, it said, just when the caterpillar thought its life was over, it became a butterfly. 
And I cannot find that journal and my heart is breaking. I would love to go back and read all the things I wrote in there. I poured my heart in there and my devastation and my joy. But I declare and I tell you, 10 years, y'all, this butterfly is finally emerging in all of her beauty and splendor. And the beautiful thing about the butterfly is that it ain't worried or concerned about whether or not you think it's beautiful. (laughs) That butterfly just is. It is beauty in and of itself, but it is not concerned whether people can see its beauty or appreciate its beauty. It just is. And that is my emergence. I left Puerto Rico different than I arrived. And for that, I have so much gratitude. Um, And as I finish this revolution around the sun on December 28th, I know that there are so many amazing things ahead. So um, yeah, I think that's all I got for y'all. Community, connection, and a sense of belonging are self-care. Some of us don't have it um, right now in the way we want. Declare it, make it intentional, manifest it, it is important. You can do all the massages you want, You can even do the inner work. I'm not making light of any form of self-care, but it gets so enriched when you can find yourself a community, a tribe, a family to help you nurture it. So with that, I hope this has been encouraging. If nothing else, it felt good to tell y'all about it. Uh, so I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who does all the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, and of course, you, my listeners. God, I love y'all. And I thank you so much for intentionally tuning in to listen to this podcast. If you have suggestions for guests or content, please reach out to me at my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget to head over to IG, like the page. That's the underscore LOL underscore pod. We got our YouTube channel where our Therapy Thursday videos are housed. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.